All right, well, Mrs. Smith was a fourth grade teacher, and uh, one day she saw one of her students making uh, ugly faces at another student. So she pulled the offending student aside, and she said, Bobby, when I was a child, I was told that if I make ugly faces, it would freeze, and I would stay like that. And little Bobby looked uh, at his teacher, and he said, well, Mrs. Smith, you can't say that you weren't warned. Obviously, probably went to uh, Donald Trump's school of etiquette. I don't know, but. uh, Well, enough of that. This morning, we're going to continue our series in the book of Philippians. I want to talk about an important subject this morning. So I've entitled the message, The Path to Glory. The Path to Glory. Lord, I just thank you for tremendous worship this morning. Again, I always say it. I sound like a broken record Sunday after Sunday. Just we're so blessed with uh, wonderful worship teams, and I'm thankful for them. And I know, Lord, more than anything else, uh, that puts a smile on your face. And it sets our hearts free when we can just worship you. And I just ask now as we turn to your word that you would fill me from the soles of my feet to the crown of my head. Lord, you've invited every single person here. You have a word for them this morning. And I ask that that word would find a soft heart and that it would birth forth into the life that you intended. So I'm just giving you and praising you for what you're going to accomplish in these next several minutes, and I just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have the privilege of looking at, in my opinion, perhaps one of the greatest portions of Scripture in the entire Bible, Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11. But before we look at that portion of scripture, we need context. And the context is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So, Skip, can you put up those verses? Therefore, if any of you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any comfort sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. The ancient Greeks said, be wise, know yourself. The Romans said, be strong and discipline yourselves. Religion says, be good, conform yourself. Epicureanism says, be sensuous and satisfy yourself. Education says be resourceful and expand yourself. Psychology says be confident and assert yourself. Materialism says be possessive and please yourself. Humanism says be capable and believe in yourself. Pride says be superior and promote yourself. And finally, Jesus Christ said be unselfish and humble yourself. Jesus stands clearly distinct from everyone else in the world. Every single religion, every single philosophy, Jesus is distinct. And I want to talk a little bit about humility this morning. And I'm not going to define it yet, but I think we have a general idea. But you might be wondering, what is the motivation for me truly to be a humble person? And Paul gives it to us in verses 1 and 2. He says, if you have any encouragement at all from being united with Jesus Christ, if you have any comfort, any joy from the love that you experience by being united with Jesus, uh, and the clear implication, by the way, in the Greek is, and you know that you do. 
You know, Paul is not questioning whether the Philippian believers are genuine followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, he's certain that these things are true of the Philippian believers. It would kind of like me being saying to Susan, you know, Susan, if it's my birthday, then I get to choose the restaurant that we eat at. If it is my birthday, Susan, and you know that it is, then I'm choosing the restaurant. You see, it would be much better to translate the ifs as since. So really what Paul is saying to the Philippian believers, and I hope that he's saying it to you, since you have experienced such incredible encouragement from being united with Jesus Christ, since you have enjoyed the comfort of his love, since you have sensed the Holy Spirit, his presence in your life, his promptings in your life, since this is true, Paul says, he says, make my joy complete by being united, by being unified, by having a harmony here in us working together. You know, nothing, nothing is more important. Nothing will bring Jesus Christ more glory than when his church is one, than when we truly are unified and when we are working together. In fact, on Jesus' final night on planet Earth, we see his longest teaching section in John, the Gospel of John. We also see his longest recorded prayer in John 17. Here is part of what we call the high priestly prayer. Jesus prayed this. My prayer is not for them alone. He's speaking about the disciples here. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Now watch this. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus says it is paramount, it is paramount that we be one, that we be united. In fact, our very witness is on the line. And you know, Interestingly enough, if you look at the world, that's exactly what we're having a problem with. If you just had to look at the inauguration on Friday, we are not one. We are not unified. The people of the world tend to be divisive and have division and strife. In fact, it generally takes a crisis, um, you know, for the world to kind of come together and work together. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Skip, can you put up his picture? You may not know him, but he was actually a famous preacher in London, England. And his ministry actually spanned from before World War II to after World War II. And after World War II, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones made this insightful observation. Listen to what he said. How often during the last war were we told of extraordinary scenes in air raid shelters how different people belonging to different classes, there in the common need to shelter from the bombs and death, forgot all of their differences between them and became one. This was because in the common interest, they forgot the divisions and the distinctions, and they were united together, and they helped one another. You know, it's a beautiful thing when you actually do see people working together. Tom Landry, Skip, can you put up his picture? It's football season. We're in the playoffs now. And some of you who are football fans will remember the legendary coach, Tom Landry, of the Dallas Cowboys. And believe it or not, Landry was a very, very strong Christian. He, in fact, was on the board at Dallas Theological Seminary, one of the seminaries that I graduated from. And Landry once said this. Listen to this. He said, there is nothing more difficult than to get 40 prideful men to work together as one. 
And he's absolutely right. But you know what? That may be true out there, but if someone comes walking in here, they should see a group of people who are starkly different than from out there. They should see a group of people who genuinely love one another, care about one another, are united, and are working together. And that is because, Paul says, we've experienced the incredible love of Jesus Christ. We've experienced his comfort. We've experienced the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying in verses 1 and 2. And he's saying if that's true of you, if you honestly can say, I've experienced the power, the presence, the majesty of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, then he says we ought to have this attitude in verses 3 and 4. Skip, can you put up verses 3 and 4? He says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. Paul tells us where there is selfish ambition, which is insisting on your own way, where there is vain conceit, which says, I am more deserving than you are. He says, wherever you see that, you are going to see division, you are going to see fighting, you are going to see strife. And that is what you see in this world, isn't it? That's what, is, what, is you, what you see in this country. That is what you see in most of the marriages, is you see people with selfish ambition and vain conceit, and it doesn't work. But Paul says, not so with us. Not so with us here at BCC. We are one group of people that people walk in here and they see incredible camaraderie and harmony and unity. And this is because we have found something special in Jesus Christ. We have experienced a new nature, a new power, his love, the power of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, we should have a very, very humble spirit. Now, you know, humility is not a very popular word. I mean, it doesn't excite a lot of people. You know, especially in our day and time. Anybody here just wake up this morning and say, you know, my goal, my goal today is to be a humble person. Anybody just do that? And you know, there's a reason for that. I want you to understand something. Humility is not natural. It is supernatural. Humility is not natural. It is supernatural. And by the way, humility is not trying to, you know, convince yourself that you are nothing. You are nothing. Skip, put up the picture. Can you find yourself? That is our galaxy. Our galaxy. And do you realize? No, that is our galaxy. There are billions and billions of galaxies. I'm not kidding. Billions and billions of galaxies. And in the grand scheme of things, guess what? We are really nothing. But genuine humility is not trying to, you know, make yourself less or think of yourself less. It's, 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 it's really about thinking about yourself less. So it's not trying to make yourself less, it's thinking about yourself less, which is far, far different. Paul tells us in verses 3 and 4, humility does not say you are better than I am. But humility does say that your needs and your interests come ahead of mine. Your needs and your interests are, are matter more than my do. Humility says, you know, I think I just got the raw end of a deal here, but that's Okay. Because what happens to me isn't so important. What really matters is our relationship. 
and that we're unified and that we walk as one and we, and, and, and we have harmony in this place. What really matters is relationship. And that's what humility, humility says. You know, I always like to say that Paul is a great preacher. And you know what great preachers do? <laughs> Close. <laughs> Preach. You just had to say Jesus, and you would have been cl- right. They illustrate. They illustrate their point. Paul does an incredible job. Now, he's going to illustrate humility. You're going to see humility personified, the greatest illustration ever. That illustration is found in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11. Skip, put it up. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, right there, you are looking at an incredible portion of Scripture. We call this a hymn, an ancient hymn or creed. And you say, what does that mean? It means that the early believers in Jerusalem, one to two years after Jesus' death and resurrection, were reciting this on Sunday. Not on the Sabbath, Saturday, but on Sunday. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? I'll tell you what the big deal about that is. is There are still many liberal scholars who say, you know, we can't be sure that Jesus really existed. He, 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 he's probably a myth. Or even if he did exist, we really can't know much about him because the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written anywhere from 30 to 40 to 50, maybe 60 years after Jesus, and, and the story has gotten muddled. But you have to understand something. Christianity didn't start in Moscow in some corner of the earth. It started in Jerusalem, right where Jesus was. And one to two years after Jesus died, the believers in Jerusalem, the Christians in Jerusalem, were affirming what you just read. So what exactly were they affirming? And I kind of want to look at that. But you know, when you think about stories that we tend to like, we like rags to riches stories, don't we? We like about the male boy, you know, who becomes the CEO. We like the scrub who becomes the MVP or the immigrant who strikes it rich or someone who just goes up the ladder of success. We love those kinds of stories. But if you look at Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11, it's just the opposite. Jesus descended into greatness. He climbed down the ladder of success. Skip, can you put up the picture? In verse 6, we see that Jesus Christ starts at the top of the ladder. Have it skip. Can you put up verse 6? Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Do you understand what that's saying here? They were affirming one year after Jesus left planet Earth, the early believers, that Jesus was God. He wasn't God's junior partner, he wasn't God's vice president. He wasn't God's assistant. He was a full member of the Trinity, of the triune Godhead, Jesus Christ was. In fact, if you look at Colossians in chapter 1, fantastic, fantastic verses in Colossians 1. We are told that Jesus Christ created the universe, the galaxy. Skip, put that up. 
Jesus himself created the billions and billions of galaxies when you look up into the sky. And then at a snap of his finger, he created planet Earth. Skip, can you put that up? And when the pinnacle of his creation, and you know what the pinnacle of his creation was? Us, right. Somebody got it. The pinnacle of his creation was you and me. We carried the very image of God. Nobody else, no thing, no angels, demons, nothing else carries the very image of the living God. And when we sinned and when we rebelled against the creator of the universe... The only way that we could be redeemed in God's justice system is for God, very God, who is absolute perfection, to put on human skin, visit planet Earth, and pay the penalty for our sin. And we're told this in verse 7 of Philippians in chapter 2. It said he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Jesus took another step down the ladder. One day in eternity, Jesus looked at the Father and we're told that he did not consider his equality with the Father something to cling to, but rather he considered your need. He considered my need. He considered the needs of all of humanity above his own needs. And in humility, he became, it says, nothing. He stepped into our world And he put on human skin. Now please note, Jesus did not come as a king. Jesus did not come as a noble with all the things surrounding nobility, like political connectedness and material wealth. No, Jesus, can you believe it? He put himself in the hands of a poor couple in a conquered nation in a backwater town, the equivalent of Arbor Hill, Nazareth. But you know what? Jesus wasn't finished. Jesus took another step down, it said. The next step down is he became a servant of his creation. In fact, we're told on his final night on planet Earth, he was eating supper with his disciples. We know it as the Seder meal, and at one point, he stood up from the table, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. He grabbed a basin of water, and he began to wash the disciples' feet. Skip, can you put up the picture? Now, I want you to know that that was not some token act by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It was a labor of love. It was a labor of servitude. The disciples' feet smelled. You see, they were walking the dirty, dusty streets of Jerusalem that day, and Jerusalem had an emissions problem. And it was not exhaust from the cars. We're talking about camel emissions, donkey emissions, stray dog emissions, and all kinds of things in the dirt. And as they were walking through, little pieces of manure got stuck between the disciples' feet. And when you see Jesus kneeling down, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he is actually taking out the pieces of manure. Manure from their feet. 
This was an incredible act of servitude. In fact, only slaves did something like this. And I want you to know, the very king, the very lord of the universe did that to his creation. And you know what he was doing? He was saving dinner. He said, what are you talking about? Skip put up the picture. You know, they didn't have chairs like we do back 2,000 years ago. They sat on their side. See that guy's feet? It's right next to the person next to him. Can you imagine if the person's feet weren't washed? And, you know, as you're trying to eat, you have manure hanging from the toenails and whatnot. Pretty appetizing, don't you think? No, I want you to think about that. That's how they, that's how they ate. There's a very practical thing. I mean, Jesus just wasn't doing the token act. This needed to be done. But only slaves do that. And I can't believe it that the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, not only became a man, but he actually serves his creation. Can you imagine? No, can you imagine if we just started doing that? No, I'm serious. It's a heart attack. Can you imagine what our marriages would be like if we just started doing that, considering someone else's interests greater than our own? Can you imagine what our workplaces might be like? I mean, we would revolutionize everything. But you know what? You know what's absolutely amazing is Jesus isn't finished. In fact, we are told this. He goes down another rung. Put up verse 8, Skip. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough that the creator of the universe became a human being. It wasn't enough that he became a servant. It said that he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. No greater love has anyone than when they will sacrifice their life for your life. Skip, can you put up the picture? That is what Jesus did for you, and that is what he did for me. On Good Friday, the first nail was driven into him at 9 a.m., His last breath came at 3 p.m., six hours, six agonizing hours, Jesus Christ, very God, hung on the cross. And as Jesus hung on the cross, he slowly sags down with his weight on the nails in the wrists. Excruciating pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in his brain. The nails in the wrist are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there is a searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of his feet. At this point, as his arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the muscles in his chest become paralyzed. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one, just one short breath. Amazingly, it is during these periods that Jesus utters seven short sentences. The first looking down at the Roman soldiers throwing dice for a seamless garment. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The second to the penitent thief. Today, you will be with me in paradise. The third looking down at the terrified, grief-stricken disciple John, the beloved apostle. He said, behold your mother. 
And then looking to his mother, Mary, he said, Behold your son. The fourth cry is from the beginning of Psalm 22. My God, my God, my father, Papa, why have you forsaken me? It is almost over now. Jesus then gives the fifth cry. I thirst. A sponge soaked in cheap sour wine, which is a staple drink of the Roman legionnaires, is lifted to his lips. Jesus rejects the liquid. Jesus is now near death. And in a tortured whisper, he says those three victorious words. It is finished. And with one last surge of strength, he once again presses his torn feet against the nail, straightens his legs, takes a deeper breath. And he utters the seventh and last cry, Father, into your hands I commend, I commit my spirit. There's only one question that remains now. Why did he do it? Why did he do it? I'll tell you why he did it. He did it for you. And he did it for you and and you and you and you and everyone out there. He did it for me. You see, we were separated from the Father, and if you die in that state, you die in your sin, you spend eternity in hell. And Jesus looked at our need and he said, your need is greater than my need. And he became a man, he became a servant of man, and he died on the cross, and it's only through the cross, only through the cross, that you can be connected back to the Father. Now that's true humility. That is true humility. That is humility to its greatest extent. And when Jesus had reached his deepest death, when he'd gone down every possible rung, we are told then this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him a name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Skip play the video.
Challenge is simple. Do you want to be raised up? Do you? Well, then the path is downward. You have to follow Jesus. I have to follow Jesus in humility. I have to go down the ladder. You have to go down the ladder. And I just want you to think about right now your relationships. And my guess is, Some of your relationships aren't so good. I'll play prophet just for a second. Bet you 10 to 1 it's got to do with humility. What would happen if we just followed Jesus' example and we really took seriously that the path to glory is the path downward and we have enough faith that in due season, God will raise us up. Father,
the Spirit of God is moving, I just pray as we sing this last song that we'll let it speak to our hearts. I pray if there's someone here this morning who does not know Jesus Christ and the life that he can give, the love that can just be infused into our very souls, into our being, the power of the Holy Spirit, the freedom of victory over sin and addiction and strong. If there's someone that just doesn't know this Jesus, I ask them that now would be that moment. Now they've seen what Jesus did for them. And right now in your seat, right now in your seat, you can say, Jesus, I come to you. I surrender to you. I place my complete trust in you and that you came and saved me. You, you, you came and met my need, my greatest need, which I was separated from God. And now I want to be brought back together and I want to be made whole and I want to be free and I want to be forgiven and I want to follow you. If there's anyone in that camp, I just ask even now that they would do that and they come up after and speak with us. And I ask for this in your precious name. Amen. And why they experience such emptiness and desperation. This word says that the challenge is, is that in our suffering and in our desperation, if we cling to Jesus, who we just talked about, we will find someone that can really meet our deepest need. And this isn't just for Sunday, the Sabbath. It's from Monday through Friday. So let that word speak to you. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. And may deep in your heart and my heart there be true humility. Amen. Don't forget Friday. Join us. Great, great movie. I am not ashamed. God bless you all.